Hey, let's jump into God's Word together and invite you to turn in your copy, uh, whether it be the one in the pew, which you're welcome to take if you don't have a Bible. Um, uh, you can follow along on the screen, or you, if you have a digital copy or a paper copy, you're more than welcome to follow. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 20. If you are in your pew Bible, we're going to be on page 64 today. And we're going to look at one of the most familiar passages. And, and it's interesting, I've said that quite a few times. When you get to Exodus, there's a lot of narrative historical moments that if you have any familiarity with the Bible, you've probably heard these things before. But even if you haven't, these moments can, are not too far out to, to grasp together. And as we look at the book of Exodus, we're looking at this God who is a redeemer. A redeemer means he frees from slavery, he rescues and preserves life. That's what a redeemer does. He offers life where there was once death. He offers blessing where there was once curse. He offers a promise where there was once a dead end. And so when we look at that, that's what we need to understand. And today... We're going to be looking at Exodus chapter 20 and looking at the Ten Commandments. Now, I know you already have it there in your hand, so I've already given you, if you will, the cheat sheet. If you're already there, you kind of know this. But I talked about it last week, how some people, and I believe all Christians, really do kind of feel this way, that the Ten Commandments are pretty important. We put them on, you know, nice little placards and hang them on our walls. We do it with artwork. We, we try to protect having those um, in places of, of law or public spaces. And even in the recent years, there's been a huge hubbub about having the Ten Commandments in public places. And um, I would just ask you this question, though. Without looking at the sheet, how many of you, saying that they are of value, already know exactly what they are in order. And, and that's not meant to be make you feel bad. That's not meant to like give you a gut punch or anything like that. But it is something for us to recognize that God's Word is to be treasured and it is something we are supposed to remember and hold dear and know. And that way if we were sharing, we wouldn't just have a, a theory about what they say. We would actually know what it says. So I'm going to give you a little memorization tool in a moment, but let's stand in honor of the reading of God's Word and look at these. In chapter 20, we're going to start with verse 1 because many times we start with verse 3 when we're talking about the Ten Commandments, but that is not how it is to be remembered. That is not where the Lord began speaking. So this is what it says. The Word of the Lord says, Then God spoke all these words. I am... The Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Do not have other gods besides me. Do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above, or on the earth below, or in the waters under the earth. Do not bow and worship to them, and do not serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the father's iniquity to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. 
Do not misuse the name of the Lord your God because the Lord will not leave anyone unpunished who misuses His name. Remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. You are to labor six days and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord. You must not do any work, you, your son, or daughter, your male or female servant, your livestock, or the resident alien who is within your city gates. For the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything in them in six days. Then he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and declared it holy. Honor your father and your mother so that you may have a long life in the land that your Lord, the Lord your God is giving you. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony against your neighbor. And do not covet your neighbor's house. Do not covet your neighbor's wife, his male or female servant, his ox or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, this is your word. You have spoken it to us and you did it in a mighty, awesome, demonstrable way that you have provided for us today. I pray that we hear it, that we will trust it, and we will follow you because you spoke them. And I ask that you as the eternal God who spoke these words then and saw even us reading them today in the very same moment, because you see all things, that we would understand that you are God and we are not. And that you have a purpose for your word to your people. Help us see it as the gift of grace that it is. And may we all be taught by you today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I told you I'm going to give you a tool. We've just read them. And you may think, what would be a tool if I didn't have my cheat sheet, if you will? Um, and, and, I, and it's really weird for me to call the Bible a cheat sheet. That just doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound like something you should be labeling it as. But um, I went to this, uh, I don't know, it was a Bible weekend kind of thing. It was, it was called Disciple Now Weekend in, um, in, in Mississippi one year whenever I was in my early college years. And one of the things that was brought to attention, it was a big challenge for, for me and for many in the room was this. The speaker, the, 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 the evangelist, if you will, was asking this question. And he had people raise their hands. And I, I won't do that now. I, I'll let you discern that in your heart and that kind of thing where you're at. And said, how many of you are followers of Christ? You, you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Most people raised their hands in that moment. You know, it was a disciple now. So most of the people were there with the aim of learning the Bible. I, I wouldn't say that everyone was a Christian. That would be uh, very presumptuous because you can have a room full of church people and still have someone that does not yet know the Lord. But most people, uh, they, they said yes. Yeah, we, we understand that. And then he said, well, how many of you have been a believer for um, this many years? And several people raised their hand. Then he would add a little bit more. And the room slowly got full. Or, and then he would go back and said, let's, let's diminish that again and start from the farthest away and then lowest. And then he asked this question. He says, how many of you, based on even just the number of years, you've been a follower of Christ, 
have memorized at least one verse or one passage of text for every year that you've been a believer. It says you will memorize all kinds of facts and we'll memorize all kinds of lines from different things. Man, I can quote Star Wars or Lord of the Rings or Back to the Future or Napoleon Dynamite or Monty Python. I can quote all kinds of things like that, especially The Princess Bride. That movie is always quotable. But the, the, the challenge that really got to me is how much time do I really focus in on memorizing these things, knowing what they say? If I could memorize songs and all kinds of things, surely I could take time. And I know people think that's hard, and I'm just going to put the challenge out there, and I might step on people's toes, and it's not me trying to be ugly. Um, you know, if we think our kids can't memorize Scripture, believe me, they can memorize every Pokemon in that little encyclopedia. Memorizing Scripture is not that hard compared to that. I'm just telling you. Putting it there. All right. Um, but how would you try to learn this? How would you try to memorize this? Some people are visual learners. Some people learn by hearing. Some people learn by seeing. Some people learn by kinetic activity. So I'm going to give you a little kinetic activity. You ready? Look at your hands loose. You ready? All right, this is how you memorize them in, in a little little way. And if you need to go back and watch the video later, you can. It's being recorded on Facebook. But here we go. There is only one God. One. Worship Him alone. Two. Do not cut out any graven images. Do not make any idols. For you crafty people or people that watch Full House, you'll know this looks like scissors. You know, cut it out. Okay? Three. Watch the way you carry the Word of God. It's like a W. Carry His name, the Word of His name, well. Fourth, honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. Some of you in Scouts kind of get that. Some of us like that. I know some of us like that. Five, honor your mother and your father. Now, for me as a child, this was pretty easy because this meant this. All right? I know that may be different type parenting, but that's what I grew up with. So honor your family, father and mother because the Bible says it will go well with you and live long life in the land that I'm giving you. Because if you don't, you get in this, you know. Okay. Now we're, we, now we're moving on to the other hand. You ready? Do not kill. Do not murder. Alright? Do not commit adultery. This last one's kind of hard. I, I, I really never got a, a really good illustration for it. But I basically say I'm missing a finger because I took something that didn't belong with me. Um, and uh, do not steal. Um, the, the, the eight and nine. Uh, it's tough. I don't, I, I, this is the part where it's hard for me to remember. Then the other is do not lie, do not bear false witness. And I would say again, once again, if you're taking an oath, you're supposed to hold your hand up like this and not like this or like this or anything like that. And then the last one, do not covet. Do not try to grab at things that do not belong to you. Do not try to want things and be discontent. Now, that's a cutesy way of looking at it. But here's the thing. Many people, when we look at the Ten Commandments, they kind of look at it, all right, these are the rules. This is just it. 
If I do that, I'm good with God. If I don't do that, I'm bad with God. Um, if I've messed up, well, I've wrecked it and that kind of thing. Or maybe I, if I mess up, well, at least Jesus got me and I'm good. We kind of look at them in that frame of reference. And we look at them just purely as knowledge or, or, or information or like a manual or an instruction book. And it is instruction. It is God saying, do this and don't do this. But what we need to understand whenever we're looking at the Ten Commandments, it is placed in a certain aspect of this, of the Bible literature for a reason. When the Ten Commandments weren't given, it wasn't like God just stopping by like the postman saying, here's your letter, see you later, Mr. Rogers. It wasn't like that. It wasn't just dropping a book saying, hey, check that out, let me know if you can deal with it. It was in the middle of this huge, holy, God-speaking, glorious spectacle, gracious statement moment that was happening at Mount Sinai. After everything the people had seen, this is when they received it. After they had been uh, rescued and redeemed by the God's mighty hand, God gave them this word and says, now that you have known my rescue, known my love, this is what I have for you. And when you look at these commands, this instruction, it does speak to the area of holiness, but it all speaks, also speaks to the area of wholeness. Holiness before the Lord and wholeness as what He intended His people to live like. Now the people of Israel, once again, these were redeemed slaves. They had lived in a land of, of just ill treatment of oppression. They lived in a land where there were all kinds of deities that were worshipped. They were building some of these buildings for these so-called deities. And their whole life had been the frame of reference. I am a slave. I am not my own. I am only what people tell me to do. And then whenever they see that my life has no value, I'm done. But here is God saying, no, you are a person that is beloved. You are a people that is special to me, and I am redeeming you to give you life. Now, I want you to know this is my hope for you to live and walk before me as new, living, free people. I give you this law. I give you this direction in this huge holding moment. And when we look at these commands, we see these gracious statements of, of the vertical commands, the first four speak of who we are before the Lord and what it means to be His. And the last six kind of talk about what it means uh, horizontally, how being His affects who we are with others. And we have to ask ourselves, well, okay, let's look at these commands and answer some questions about them. First, ask and answer what do they mean and what is the message? Now, I know it is already 11.38, so we're going to do our best to get through all ten today, but we will see where we are by the time we get to noon. But we're going to look at some insight and ask, what is the meaning and what is the message? The first commandment, do not have other gods besides me. Some of your versions, if you're reading the New King James or the King James or the NIV or ESV or NASV or Amplified, it says you'll have no other gods before me. Um, but it's really more direct that you you have no other gods besides me. That we remember when we come to the Lord, there is no one but Him. There is no one like Him. Quick, in your mind and your focus right now, what is the equal opposite of cold? 
We know that. We're in Michigan right now. What is it? Hot. Don't tell me to turn my thermostat down to 65. I get it. I did it because I'd rather have a sweater on than not have power. But we want, you know, cold, opposite is hot. What is the opposite of dark? Light. Right. Um, in the political spectrum, what's the opposite of red? Blue. You know, if we're looking at those things. All right, so we have these equal opposites. Here's a question. What's the equal opposite of God? No. No. That with God, there is no yin and yang or light side of the force and dark side of the force. There is no one like Him. There is no one but Him. Not even Satan himself, who is a created, limited being, is anywhere in equal power to the omnipotent, all-powerful, all-seeing, all-knowing, always-present, always-holy God. And so when you take this command, the meaning of it is worship God alone. This helps deal with any worldview of atheism that He doesn't exist. It helps deal with any view of polytheism that the people were dealing with. They had just left a world where there were all kinds of deities. There was deities for the mountains. There was deities for the valleys. There was deities for the sun. There was deities for the night. There was deities for the river. There was deities for the desert. There was deities for life. There was deities for death. There was deities for wine. There was deities for without. There was deities for bugs. But what God says in this holy moment as the mountain is ablaze with smoke and thunder and lightning and His voice is crying out where every single person, all 600,000 plus men and their families are hearing, there is only one God. Understand that worship is now important. And in your world that you've been in, you've seen the competing arena of worship and idolatry And everyone worships something. All of us place a value on something. But what Jesus, what the Lord is telling in this moment is do not seek to replace the Creator, the Redeemer, the Lord, the Holy One, the Savior with a created thing. That everything else that's not God is not God. And we must be very careful of that. In fact, that's what the Apostle Paul would write about in in Romans chapter 1. And when he says that, it's it's, that's the reason God's wrath has been revealed. It's because people suppress that truth that He is who He says He is. That even though they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God. And what they ended up doing is they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they worshipped the created rather than the Creator who is forever blessed. We need to understand that worship means something. And if God is God and there is no one like Him or no one but Him, then that worship has only one natural way that it should be directed. To Him. Our worship is of incredible importance. When we see who God is, the who of our worship is of far greater importance. So the meaning, what is the meaning? Worship God as God alone. Because only He is God. And the message? Worship is of incredible importance. Do not take it lightly. Second, 
when we look at this, this next command that's given to us, we talk about these idols that are, are presented and, and do not make these, these graven images. Do not worship anyone else. Do not make an idol for yourself. And, and I, I love what it says here. It's not just like a general idea. It says even these things that you would say are appearance in heaven. In other words, they're seeing this holy moment of fire and smoke and thunder. And God says, I don't even want you to make an image of this to worship. Now, now, let me make sure I put that caveat there. It's not a problem if you have images telling a story. What's the problem is whenever you bow down to them and you make it an idol. I know that there's a far out teaching that says, man, if you ever have a picture of Jesus, you must be of the devil because we're not meant to do any of that. Um, now, we don't really know what Jesus looked like. I would venture to say he does not look like a white European with blonde hair and a Dutch boy haircut. He probably doesn't. Um, he probably looks more like an olive skinned or Middle Eastern person. Yeah, because that's where he was from. That's who he was. But here, the commandment is don't try to imitate and worship anything that you've seen in the heavens above, certainly in the created earth below or even in the waters. Do not bow down to worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord, am a jealous God. Now, I know I'm taking a little more time on these first commandments because I think they set the tone for everything else. After God has said, I am the Lord your God who has delivered you out of slavery. I have made myself available to you. I want you to know that worshiping me is of incredible importance. Because there's no one else that you should ever direct your life towards and no one else that should ever direct your life. But secondly, don't try to lessen me. Don't try to put me in this nice little frameable box and says that alone is God. I'm going to show you who I am. I'm going to teach you who I am. I'm going to relate to you who I am. I'm going to show you and walk with you so that you have never been forsaken. But don't try to put this in a limitation and certainly don't try to equate me with something else that I am not. What is the meaning of this? I think the meaning is beware of and do not make an allowance for idolatry. Pretty straightforward. God says don't make idols and don't worship them. Don't serve them. What does this deal with in our life? What is the meaning, the message? Well, it deals with the world of pantheism that says, well, anything that's created or anything around, it's got God in it. It's a spiritual thing. No, no, it's not. Not anything. There are things that God made, but they're not God. Even we ourselves who, who are indwelt by God. Guess what? We're not God. We're image bearers of God, but we're not God. It also deals with the wor- worldview of pluralism. Now you may say, what are these isms you're speaking of? Well, atheism is the belief that there, that there is no God, that not one of them exists. Polytheism, the world in which the Jewish people were raised up in, and, and still parts of the world deal with this, is the place that everything has a God. And they could be innumerable. Pantheism is the idea that God is in everything and God is everything. Well, that's wrong. And pluralism is the view that everything is equal. All faiths are equal. They're all just 
spokes on the wheel pointing into the center axle. They're all just trails on the mountain going to the same peak. No, that is not it. And by the way, if you believe that, you may say, oh, I just kind of hope that, Pastor. I'm, I'm, I want to tell you that that doesn't even make sense. That's not even logical. Because if you say all religions are equal, you've already said all religions are discounted. Every single one of them. Because each one of them says to claim that they are the truth. And so if you say they're all equal, then they all can't be true if they're all different. And they are. I'm getting off track there. But this was very helpful for the people of Israel. As they were going to be going through the wilderness over the next 40 years, as they would eventually become a nation, they would be among people that had all kinds of different beliefs. Many of them were unbiblical forms of worship. They weren't according to that of the Lord. Many of them were illogical forms of worship, that if we did certain things, God is obliged to hear us. And I I won't go into some of those areas um, because there are some older children in the room, and, and if you would like to talk to me about what those illogical areas are, I can talk. Some were immoral, where they would actually kill other human beings. Some of them were ancestral, where they equated their, their people that had lived before them as deities. God is carving out right now this rule. Don't fall prey to this. Don't let this be the direction of your life. And to understand the mean, the message is this, that worship, it will have a right focus and a right activity. And the Lord is the only right focus of our worship. As I said before, there's simply no comparison that can be made to Him. In fact, in the very law itself, you see His charity declared. He says, I'm, I'm the Lord your God that shows faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. Not only do you see his charity declared, you see his jealousy declared. You may say, well, hold up, hold up. Jealousy is a bad thing. Jealousy is always a bad thing when we think about it, right? How can God, who is good, be jealous, which we equate with bad? Just a quick explanation of that. Our jealousy is what exalts us and puts us on a platform saying, I know the highest good, I have the highest worth. Anyone that would step out of line with that, I see as uh, wrong. And my jealousy goes against them. Anything that has more than me, I am jealous of because it's not worthy of that. That is wrong because our thoughts are always limited. Our thoughts are always in a place that we we are not all-knowing. We're not all-powerful. We're not omnipresent. But God is all those things. And so when someone says the way of the Lord is this, there is absolutely no other way higher. And to seek after something that would be different from his direction, it is only right for him to be jealous. Because he already knows the ultimate yes, the ultimate good, the ultimate holy, the ultimate righteous. There is nowhere else you could even discover or walk to find it than with the Lord. You may think of it in the other way as this is thinking of it as a parent to a child. When a parent knows what they've been through, and, and a parent doesn't know the greatest good, but they have a general understanding of good. And their child is, is, um, ornery or, or pushing back or resistant or, or declaring that, that, they, that you, you couldn't possibly know what it's like to be me. We would be jealous for them to just understand and grasp, I love you and, and I'm only telling you this because I love you. 
That's what it means that God's jealousy is declared for us, that He has the greatest view. But it also gives us this view of His supremacy. His supremacy is declared. And, and I want you to get this viewpoint. Whenever you're reading through the Old Testament, a good lesson for you is this. Many of the images will be agricultural or family. The second, word pictures tell huge tales. Word pictures choose huge tales. And so here when, when God says, I show my love to a thousand generations, but I will, I will show and punish the children of the father's iniquity to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Here's the word picture. In those days, if you lived to see the third generation, you lived a long time. If you lived to see the fourth generation, you lived an exceptionally long time. But it was incredibly rare that you would ever live to see the fourth generation. That's part one of the picture. Secondly, you would also many times live constantly in the same home as your children. They would, your children, your children's children, your children's children's children, and to the fourth generation, your children's 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 children would see you. And if you lived a life that was persistent in denial and misdirection and following God, that has a tendency to trickle down to the rest of the people in the household. And guess what? They're going to receive the same punishment you're due because they're doing the same things you're doing. That's the picture. But then... What goes beyond that is God says, conversely, to those who love me, I will display that love to a thousand generations. For those that hate me, to four. Because they'll be able to see this in their lifetime. The person that's living will be able to see what they're doing and how it reflects on their children and their children's children and their children's children's children. But to those that love the Lord and follow after they will not yet know because even a thousand generations later, beyond the horizon of our even viewpoint, I will still be showing mighty love. I will still be showing my faithfulness. That's an awesome picture. I'll tell you this. I can do that ancestry thing. My grandmother was big into genealogy. And so she traced back to my seventh, I think it's seventh, and maybe 17th. I'm not really good with that kind of number in my, 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 my math of generations there. But I believe it's seventh generations back from my, my great-grandmother, one of the people that was at Valley Forge with George Washington was one of my ancestors. So there's my little hoorah moment that I can claim. But that's seven to 17 generations from, from me. That's as far back as I can look. That's not even close to a thousand. This is the immensity of God's grace that He offers to those who love Him. And that's why He says, My ways are so much higher than your ways. My thoughts are so much higher than your thoughts. Let's look at the third commandment. Do not misuse the name of the Lord your God because the Lord will not leave anyone unpunished who misuses My name. Here's the lesson, the meaning. Do not take lightly the name that you bear. That God who says, I created you, I am your origin, I am the one who has given you a new identity as your Redeemer. You're my kingdom of priests. Remember, this is who he's talking to. This is also who he's talking to us. I have given you a morality. I have given you a purpose. I have given you a promise and a destiny. So do not carry 
that name with you lightly. Many times people look at this and they think it's just the watching of the words. No, it's carrying the word of God, his name, uh, uh, well. Do not carry it in vain. Worship means we carry the name of the Lord properly. That we understand that just like the Lord's prayer begins, that the Lord's name, the Father above, he is to be hallowed in all that we do or say. That is the direction. And it's, it's really humbling when you think about it, that we, we get to be called image bearers of God. That's, that's just crazy to think about that God would do that. And it's even more humbling to know what He has done to restore this image. Because the Bible tells us that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have vandalized the image that we bear. And yet what God does is He comes and He brings about His justice for that vandalism by placing on Himself. And then He brings restoration through the gift of grace to everyone who calls upon Him. And He transforms that life. It is humbling to know what God does. Here He did this mighty act for the people of Israel. We hear thousands of years later reading the same word, hearing the same word. We look back on the cross. That in-between moment that is the climax of it all. And we see what He has done so that we may carry His name in the way that honors Him. So what are we to do? We should never do that which blasphemes His name. We should never do that which defamates His name. And we should never do that which cheapens His name. That's what we do. Not only with our language, with our, whether it's profanity or not, that's also spoken about in the book of Leviticus, but with how we carry that image, knowing what Jesus has done to restore it and to bring us back to Him. Fourth commandment, and we'll stop here. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You are to labor six days and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You must not do any work, your son or your daughter, your male or female servant, your livestock or resident alien who is within you or your city gates. For the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them in six days. And then He rested on the seventh day, Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and declared it holy. What is the meaning of this? How do we learn from this? Take Take it for what it says. It means to continually take the weekly time to rest, reflect, be renewed, and respond to the Lord your God in worship. That taking that pause... It's not something like, ah, you know, it's not a big deal. No, it, it, it has a focused and fixed meaning for God's purposes. And when you do this, this shows us that worship is not just singing songs. This is not just uh, attending a service. It is a part of those things. But what we see is worship done right and done well, it will leave a mark on your work. It'll leave a mark on your work because you're going to say, instead of working all days of the week, every day, no day of rest, no day of vacation, any of that stuff. By the way, those are days of vacation when I was, it's not me tooting my own horn, but I was amazed when I went on a mission in Thailand and I was sitting at a home 
What's vacation? What is that? What is a day of rest? Because all they knew is every day you do the same thing. You get up, you open your shop, you, you produce the market, you cut the vegetables, you cut up and slice up the meat at the home that we were repairing. You, you do all that every single day. There was no day of rest. There's, there's no such thing as that. You work from sun up to sundown, and that's your day. That's your lot in life. But God says we're not to operate like that. In fact, this is not an American idea. This is a God-oriented and focused idea. That just as He took that moment to take in all that He had done, and in His mind focus and in, in, in seeing everything all at once, seeing the perfection of the garden and seeing the brokenness of Adam and Eve and seeing what it would cost His people and seeing what the, what they would mean for Him to give His own life on the cross and be resurrected and seeing what would be happening on February 3rd in 2019. In that moment, He is taking it all in. He knows it all at once and, and, and He knew what was required for His people. But this area will leave a mark on your work, not only because you're taking a witness to say, I know that God can use in my life to do more in six days than I can do with seven. I know God can do more in six days than I could ever do in seven. So I'm going to take that seventh day to honor Him as He has said to focus. But it also leaves a witness because it says whenever you're doing this, it's going to set a tone that others are going to see. Those that have no idea, what's a vacation? What's a day off? What does that even mean? Why are you not doing this? Because it sets a tone and says, I recognize the witness and the worship of my God is of far greater importance than anything else I could be doing on this day. Third, it leaves the mark on the welfare of people. Because God knows how we can try to find loopholes. He says, so this, you must not do any work, but neither can your kids. So don't say, well, I'm the man of honor, I'm the woman of honor, I will leave my kids to do all the work while I go do this. And they'll take care of it. And one day when they're grown up, they can experience what I experience. No, on this day, they are to partner with you. They are to be a part of this. And not only those that are related to you biologically by blood that you love and pray for, but that male and female servant, those people that work for you, you give them that day off too. And, And also that livestock, those animals that you care for, give them that day of rest. Let them be replenished. And 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 that resident alien, that stranger who's not even a part of the ethnicity that's around you, give them that day of rest. It sets a tone on the welfare of those around them. That they see, wow, this honoring of God, it means something. You see, here's the, the meaning is that you continually take the weekly time to rest, reflect, be renewed and respond to the Lord your God in worship. But the message is this. Worship will mess you up because it will reorient your life. It will reorient your lives as as we see all that the Redeemer is able 
to do and, and as He is able to be trusted with, with all our lives and all of our lives, it, it reorients everything. It will change how you even live your calendar out. And this is the commands that God says, first and foremost, these four vertical commands that say, this is what it means to now know the One who has rescued you. To walk with the One who has rescued you. To trust the One who has rescued you. To love the One that has rescued you. To be holy and whole with the One who rescued you. This is that instruction from the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, today as uh, we come to this moment of conclusion, we, we did not get through all ten today, but... I pray people will forgive me. I think if they look at their clocks, they probably will. But in the middle of that, I pray that we don't just skip to the next thing right now. God, today was a day that we are meant to set aside to rest and reflect and be renewed and respond in worship to the Lord your God. Lord our God, who is the Redeemer. And as we do that, we come to this moment of this time of response. Well, that's precisely what we do. That in the middle of everything that may go on today, I know it's a busy American holiday, but in this moment we have that opportunity to just stand before You in all Your awe and wonder, in all Your glory, in all Your grace. We get to experience the good that You have for Your people. So Lord, help us not miss it. Help us respond rightly to You. And look at this through the filter of the cross. That once again, you're the God who rescues. You didn't give us these rules, these laws, these instructions so that we could somehow earn or achieve anything. You gave them to us so that after we have trusted what you have already done, the greatest payment that could ever be paid, we would walk with you in holiness and wholeness as redeemed people. So Lord, in this moment, as we reflect and respond, renew your people. Help them see the restoration that's in you. In this moment, Jesus Christ. Amen.